sermon is from the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our current series, God's Call to Church Action, is from 2 Corinthians. Today, telling the truth, the fellowship of explanation from 2 Corinthians 1, 23 through 2, 4. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. You turn with me to the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, and especially the verses that were read to us a little earlier. God's call to church action. We're pursuing a study of the second epistle under that theme. And we've reached 2 Corinthians 1, verses 23 through chapter 2 and verse 4. And our theme this morning is the fellowship of explanation or telling the truth. Having made clear how God indicates his will to us in terms of plans and schedules and aims and objects. Paul now settles down to tell how God made him change a procedure he was about to adopt and explain the truth that had been in his heart all the time but which had been utterly misconstrued and misunderstood by the saints at Corinth. You remember in our last study, Lord's Day ago, we were seeing how God vindicates his own in spite of man's relentless accusations. But now Paul proceeds to tell his readers why he was unable to come to Corinth as he had planned. And while the historical details of this particular change of schedule are interesting, they're really unimportant. What is essential for us to see is the underlying lessons of this particular passage in this wonderful epistle of Second Corinthians. And we're calling it the Fellowship of Explanation. I think it can be said without any fear of contradiction that more difficulties are created both in churches, in homes, and in our social circles outside through lack of communication, through lack of misunderstanding in this matter of explanation than for any other reason. Anyone can recall times without number when we've either caused heartache or experienced heartache ourselves. Why? Because we've not been open. We've not been frank. We've not been transparent. There is no young person here this morning, no older person, who hasn't had some concern of heart during your history where the cause had been explicitly in this matter of lack of communication. Poor public relations. Why? Because you didn't tell the truth. You didn't tell the truth. You told a half-truth. Or you withheld what you could have said. And tragedy has occurred. Now in this passage where Paul describes what he considers to be telling the truth, we have to my mind some deep principles that are going to be a blessing to every one of us, not least to myself, as I've pondered these words and weighed them in the presence of God. Do you remember a passage 
in the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians where Paul describes immature Christians as children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. And in that passage, he goes on to plead with his readers to speak the truth in love, that they might grow up into Christ in all things which is the head. Telling the truth, then, is an evidence of spiritual development and maturity. Before a local church can go into action, before we can really stand with confidence in a hostile world outside and say, Thus saith the law. We must learn to tell the truth inside the church. We must know something of the fellowship of explanation, the art of speaking the truth in love. So I want us to come right to the passage in question now. And notice, first of all, verse 23, chapter 1 and verse 23. In these verses immediately before us, we learn that there are five ingredients in this matter of speaking the truth in love. Five ingredients. Here is the first one. There must be an honest explanation of the truth. An honest explanation of the truth. Paul says, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. More literally, this should read, I call upon God as a witness against my soul. Paul was so concerned that the Corinthians should believe his reasons for his change of plans that in opening the subject to them he actually calls upon God to witness against his soul. This form of adjuration or appeal to God was quite familiar in the writings of Paul. You find it again and again in the epistle of Paul to the Romans, the Galatians, and of course here in Corinthians. And Paul's use of this language was never intended to convey the notion that there were times when he didn't speak the truth. Perish the thought. Rather, his purpose in using this adjuration, this appeal to God, was to impress his Corinthian brethren and sisters, that whenever he wrote, whenever he spoke, it was in the conscious knowledge that God was his witness in heaven and that he couldn't possibly do anything else than be honest. For one day he would have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for everything he had said. What a word this is to modern Christendom. We live in a day of play acting, double standards, exaggerated pronouncements, and deceitful speech-making. And alas, these forms of dishonesty tend to infiltrate the true church of Jesus Christ. And before we know it, we're exaggerating the truth. Before we know it, we're only telling half-truths. Before we know it, we hold back that which we ought to say. Why? Because of some pride, some arrogance that defines a spirit which says, I won't take the humble place. I won't tell the truth because I'll be exposed by having told the truth. And so the sepsis in the church continues to fester. And so the blessing of God is held back. Yes, before we know it, we find ourselves as individuals, Christians. Yes, and sometimes as a church corporate, exaggerating the truth or misrepresenting the truth. How we need to be reminded of the words of our Savior when he said, Matthew 12, 36, 
Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof at the day of judgment. Let us never forget that these words apply to the believer as well as to men and women who are outside. And as we shall see in the course of these very studies in 2 Corinthians, one day as believers we're all going to stand before the bima, the judgment seat of Christ, that we may be examined for everything we have done in the body, whether it be good or bad, and everything done in the body includes what we've done with our lips, every word that we have spoken. Indeed, Paul reminds us that the Lord will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Then shall every man have his praise of God. How we'll wish in that moment of revelation, that moment of exposure before the judgment seat of Christ, that we've always told the truth. I read that verse over and over again in my study this week. Every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. And I thought how that word could be challenged 25 years ago. But no longer. Every word that I'm speaking at this precise moment is being recorded in our radio booth. It can be held against me. Everything is permanently, indelibly recorded. And if men of science have produced devices where that which a man said 25 years ago can be recalled, 10 years ago can be recalled, 5 minutes ago can be recalled, what is it going to be like when with one flash exposure every idle word that we have spoken is brought before the judgment seat of Christ? To tell the truth is your responsibility as a Christian. So Paul says quite plainly to the Corinthians, I call upon God to witness against my soul if I'm telling anything else than the truth. I'm sparing you in not coming to Corinth. I'm sparing you. Let me tell you the truth. I'm sparing you not coming to Corinth. Things weren't right in the church. And Paul informs them quite openly and plainly the reason why he changed his plans not to come to Corinth. He knew that if he came to Corinth, he would have to use the rod of correction. He would have to implement the discipline he'd already promised them in his first letter. You remember those words? Will ye that I shall come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? He told them this. And he sees that the situation now merits true discipline. The rod of correction. And he says, I want to spare you. I want to give you a little more time to get right with God and get right with me. And when you're humble and repentant, I'll be glad to come. But not until then. And I call God to witness that this is why I've changed my plans. An honest explanation of the truth. And while there's a historical story behind this statement of Paul, the underlying lesson for you and for me is this. Be honest. At all costs, be honest. Never say anything unless you can say down deep in your heart, I call God in heaven to witness against my soul if I'm not speaking the truth. But let's move quickly to the next principle. There must be an honest explanation of the truth. But in the second place, notice here, there must be a humble explanation of the truth. Look at verse 24. 
Not for that we have dominion over you or your faith. Just stop at that a moment. Not for that we have dominion over your faith. Now Paul had every right to exercise spiritual dominion and authority which God had given him through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. But even with this prerogative, the apostle is very careful to make it clear that he doesn't intend to use that authority which God has given him in order to convince the Corinthians that he's actually speaking the truth. Now this is very important. Very important indeed. Paul says it's possible for you to think I'm exploiting my authority. I'm exploiting my authority by saying I'm speaking the truth. But he says irrespective of my authority. I want you to know that without dominating your faith, without lording it over God's heritage to use Peter's phrase, I'm speaking the truth. I come to you in absolute humility. Here again is a principle we must all accept and apply. It is so easy to exploit a position of authority in order to convince other people of our truthfulness. For example, a pastor over his people, officers over the membership, parents over their children, masters over their servants, politicians over their constituency, and so on. The Bible tells us that we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. We'll come to that verse in 2 Corinthians 13.8, a very important verse. We can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. In other words, truth is inexorable and unaffected by whether we have authority or not. Truth is truth, whether I have authority or not. Truth is truth, whether I'm a liar or not. Truth is truth, because truth is God. Position or power does not change dishonesty into truthfulness. When we come with the truth, we must adopt the spirit of humility and not lord it over others. Therefore, we never come with pride or a domineering spirit when we tell the truth. We come with sheer simplicity. The truth is truth. And we're not only honest, but we're humble in telling the truth. Needless to say, such humility in Christ always comes through with the authority of Christ. When a man is truly clothed with the humility of Jesus Christ, there's an authority about what he says, which is utterly indisputable, because men distinguish that humility, and in that humility they detect Christ's authority. For it's only upon a humble life, only upon a humble life, that God pours the oil of anointing and authority. So in our fellowship of explanation, let us see to it that we're honest in telling the truth. That we're humble in telling the truth. Never let us exploit a position we have of authority in telling the truth. For truth is truth, irrespective of what position you hold. Exploit no such power or position. Tell the truth because the truth is truth. And tell it with honesty. And tell it with humility. But now to a third principle. There must be not only this matter of honesty and humility, but we must tell the truth with helpfulness. There must be a helpful explanation of the truth. A helpful explanation of the truth. Take the second part of verse 24. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, says Paul, but are helpers, helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. 
Now it is quite obvious that Paul's supreme aim in speaking the truth in love was that he might be helpful to the believers at Corinth and so increase their joy. The apostle assumed that if people are genuinely converted to Jesus Christ, then nothing can shake their faith. If we believe in the doctrine of election, as I most certainly do, if we believe in the doctrine of the security of the believers, as I most certainly do, and so did Paul, if we believe that a man who has committed his life to Jesus Christ now stands in the faith, then nothing's going to shake that faith. Nothing's going to shake that faith. Why? Because Christ has committed himself to pray for the faith of every one of his children that they might not fail. Do you remember the story of Peter on the hour of his, in the hour of his denial? When with curses and with oaths he denied that he ever knew the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, his courage went, his loyalty went, other characteristics of virtue went, but his faith never faltered. Why? Because Jesus had said to him, Satan is going to take you like wheat and he's going to sift you. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. So Paul says, I'm not concerned about your faith. If you're truly converted to my Lord in Christ, in faith you stand and for faith you stand. But he said, I am concerned about something which has been broken. It's our fellowship. Our joy is gone. You have no more joy in me, and I have no more joy in you. Once there was a glorious sense of rapport. Once there was joy between us. You rejoiced in my presence, and I rejoiced in your presence. Now, a barrier has gone up. Call it an invisible barrier, barrier if you like. But a barrier has gone up. And I want to tell you that I'm telling the truth. Not in order that I might strengthen or weaken your faith, for your faith is unaffected by anything that's happened. But I do want to restore that joy. That's the meaning of this. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. Yes, the fellowship and joy that he once enjoyed with those believers at Corinth had been affected. So his whole point in explaining the reasons for his cancelled visit was that he might restore the joy he once shared with his Corinthian friends and converts. Happy is the pastor. Happy is the elder, the deacon, the church member, the father, the mother, the brother, the sister or friend who speaks the truth in love. That joy might be recaptured and that ruptured fellowship might be restored. What a revolutionary change would come into our public relations if our fellowship of explanation always produced joy? Have you ever knelt in your quiet time and asked God by the Holy Spirit to convict you of any ruptured fellowship, any broken joy with brother or sister in your given fellowship from churches from whence you come? And within our own fellowship. I wonder if we've taken Jesus seriously when he said, when you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that you have ought against your brother, or as the other gospeler puts it, your brother has ought against you, for it works both ways. Leave your gift. Leave your gift at the altar. Don't offer it. Leave it there. Go and be reconciled to your brother. 
And when you put that right, and when you being helper and recapturing that joy, when you have restored the ruptured fellowship, then come and offer that gift. Then come and offer that gift. And I want to tell you that when eternity reveals the secrets of our hearts, I guarantee to say this issue on which I now speak at this very moment will be the cause of stunted lives in churches and of withheld revival in local churches more than any other matter that I could name from this sacred desk. And alas, alas, the problem is that the longer we leave these things unattended, the more we try to offer in a perfunctory way our praise and our prayer in our quiet times or publicly, while these matters are unattended in our lives, while we haven't put right the wrongs that exist in our local churches, we become hardened and indifferent and apathetic and with a curious, brilliant rationalization explain it all away and we proceed with the mechanics of prayer and worship whereas in fact we've never really broken through to heaven. And one of the acid tests of this is our insensitivity to preaching, our recoil from anything that call, calls for sacrifice, and brokenness and repentance at the cross. Our immediate revulsion against anything that might appear to be emotional. Why? Because we sealed up the streams and the springs of our emotional life. We're no longer tender before God. We're no longer tender before God. Why? Because we've rationalized our way into position where heaven can be as brass and we just say, well then, why pray by faith? It isn't a matter of how I feel. All that matters is, is to go through the dutiful mechanics of what the Bible teaches me to do. And God holds back the blessing. And atmospheres become cold. We become super critical and destructive. We analyze everything. We look at everything synthetically. Instead of moving into God's purpose and saying, Oh God, it isn't what I'm expecting. It's what you're going to give that I'm waiting for. I'm wide open. I'm wide open. I repeat what I said at the very beginning. That I am convinced in my soul that this matter of living the truth instead of living the lie is one of the greatest issues on which God has to speak to his people before we can go out in action to a desperate world outside. Let me ask you, are you right with everybody in your local church? Are you right with your pastor? Are you right with your elders, your deacons? Are you right with your presbytery? Are you right with your church stewards? Are you right with your committees? Are you right with every other member in the church? Are you aware of anyone who has ought against you or you against them? Have you ever lifted the telephone to put it right? Have you been alongside of them and knelt with them and said, let's put this right. I want to be a helper of your joy. Let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you everything. And by telling you everything, I want to be a helper of your joy. It may be that in telling the truth, I may find in my own heart things that I should have been ready to confess and put right before God and before you. 
You know that the Korean blessing, that tremendous revival for which Korea is now famous in history, started just on that issue. When Jonathan Goforth, this tremendous missionary who longed for revival, felt that somehow he wasn't winning through, felt somehow that he wasn't making any progress. He was a great preacher, a great evangelist. He had organized all the local churches, but somehow or other there was no blessing. And then he picked up Finney's book and he began to read the laws that determine spiritual revival. And one of the first laws he came across was this matter of getting right with your brother. And somehow or other, he was convicted at once on this issue. And he began to ask God to search his heart. And it wasn't very long before God reminded him of a brother down the compound with whom he hadn't spoken for months. They'd had a fallout. They'd had a disagreement, a controversy. And he said, oh God, but it was, it was his fault. It was his fault. It was his fault. And God said, no, it's your fault. You haven't told him all the truth. And the struggle went on until go forth tells us he was broken in the presence of God and with utter repentance he saw that if revival was going to come he must fulfill this law of spiritual revival and down he went at midnight along the dusty road and awakened his brother and told him all the truth and in that moment clasped arm in arm God broke through from heaven and swept their hearts with revival and that great Korean revival swept the land it started right there Right there, telling the truth. Telling the truth. Yes, there must be an honest explanation of the truth. There must be a humble explanation of the truth. There must be a helpful explanation of the truth, having in mind the restoration of joy and a fellowship once experienced. But let's move on to a fourth principle. We've got to be honest and humble and helpful, yes, but there's something else here. There must be a healthy explanation of the truth. And to my mind, this is choice, absolutely choice. Look at that verse 1 of chapter 2. But I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness and further down. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them that I ought to rejoice. Here is an interesting statement indeed. Paul is telling his readers that before contemplating another visit to them, he would consult his own feelings. Many scholars maintain that two visits had already been made, the second of which, unrecorded in the Acts, was of a very painful character. And the apostle was determined, therefore, that such an experience should never be repeated, both for their sake and his. As William Barclay puts it, and I want to quote here, there can be a sadistic pleasure in seeing someone wince at a sharp and cruel word. But Paul was not like that. He never rebuked to cause pain. He always rebuked to restore joy. End of quote. We must always be aware of any tendency to morbid satisfaction in seeing others squirm, yes, and smart under the power of our words. The Bible tells us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And we must remember that when speaking to men and women within the church or outside of the church, we have power of life and death. In other words, we must ever preserve a healthy balance between severity and goodness, goodness and severity. 
and we must be healthy. That in telling the truth, it isn't just to make somebody squirm, make somebody smart because they were in the fault. Open your heart with a healthiness that whatever there is there of sepsis, it might be healed. John tells us that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So many of us know nothing more or less in our lives than the ministry of Moses. We're forever laying down the law. How few of us know the sublime balance of the indwelling Lord who never spoke the truth without grace and never exhibited grace without speaking the truth. In Paul's wonderful phrase, we need to practice speaking the truth in love. When men listen to our Savior, remember in the days of his earthly pilgrimage, it is recorded that they wondered, they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Paul undoubtedly was thinking of this very fact when he exhorted the saints at Colossae to let their speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that they might know how to answer every man. Just as salt arrests corruption and sweetens and seasons everything it touches, so the Holy Spirit must anoint every word we utter. Only then, only then, will our conversation be divinely controlled and have a healthy influence over others. When a man's speech, yes, and behavior, is seasoned with salt, which is a wonderful picture of the sweetening, cleansing power of the Holy Spirit and controlling power of the Spirit over the tongue. When a man speaks with grace seasoned with salt, he always effects a healthy influence. A healthy influence. Salt arrests corruption. Salt purifies. Salt makes that which could become unhealthy wholesome. Healthy explanation of the truth. Let us be honest. Let us be humble. Let us be helpful. Let us be healthy in our explanation of truth. But my great burden this morning, and in conclusion, is this fifth principle here. Look at it again. All tied up for us in verse 4. This last observation demands our very close consideration. There must be a heartfelt, a heartfelt explanation of the truth. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. These are moving words from the heart of the great apostle and deserve, I repeat, our very close attention. Everything he has said concerning his reasons for changing his plans, everything he has said is clear and convincing. But the Corinthians could still be cold and unaffected. Absolutely cold and unaffected. But so open and transparent is this man of God that he shares with them the deepest secrets of his heart. And I want to say before we go any further that you can be absolutely accurate you can have every single point of your explanation substantiated and documented. You can tell the truth with utter honesty, humility, helpfulness and healthiness. And yet completely miss the point. You can do all that, I repeat, and still lose your brother, lose your sister. I repeat, you can be as orthodox and as clear and as definite and indefensible 
in telling the truth and still cause your brother to be stumbled. That's why Paul ends on this point. That's why Paul ends on this point. Ultimately, we've got to be absolutely broken in our telling of the truth. It must be heartfelt. Heartfelt. And to emphasize this, Paul says three things here with which we conclude this morning. There are three things that we must observe. First of all, what Paul calls the painfulness of his heart. The painfulness of his heart. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you. That word anguish means pressure or spasm. It occurs only once again in the New Testament in Luke 21, 25, where Jesus describes the distress of nations, which is to characterize the end of the age. It is a term which implies the thought of being hemmed in, or as we say, in great straits. Medically, it denotes a kind of person who has a heart attack, or a kind of experience which is described by our medical men as the constriction of the heart, the constriction of the heart, or the spasm of the heart. This then was the kind of anguish Paul experienced when he wrote his letter of rebuke and correction to the Corinthians. Now whether this epistle was one we call the first letter to the Corinthians, or whether the epistle to which he refers here is one which has been since lost to us, is quite immaterial. The point is that Paul deeply felt the pain of having to rebuke them, and then cancel his plans to see them. And he wants, he wants those Corinthians to know the truth. He wants them to know the truth, why he changed his plans. Paul was in the right, all right. But he wants them to know the truth, not only because he was right, he wants them to know the truth because he's broken. He wants them to see through to his heart that this caused him real pain. Absolute pain, anguish of heart, spasm of heart, constriction of heart. He was hemmed in. He had pain and anguish. And he tells them. And I want to say, throughout the years of ministry, whether in crusades, conventions, or churches, I've come to see it again and again. You can say everything as accurately, as it is beautifully, and as homiletically, and as sincerely as you dare. But you never win through to the heart until people see it's cost you something. It's cost you something. It's cost you pain. It's cost you pain. The painfulness of his heart. But with the painfulness of his heart, we notice also the brokenness of his heart. I wrote unto you with many tears. I wrote unto you with many tears. Here was a man who was unashamed to confess that he wept copiously on their behalf. He had wept copiously on their behalf. Such tears, says Calvin, show weakness, but a weakness more heroic than would have been the iron apathy of a stoic. Notwithstanding Calvin's remark, however, great man that he was, we must remember that even the Son of God knew what it was to weep with strong crying and tears. Some wrongs will never be righted in the church until we know how to speak the truth, not only in love, but in tears. For as we shall see in the chapters that follow, there is a godly sorrow which worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. God give us broken hearts when we speak the truth. 
I repeat, God give us broken hearts when we speak the truth. We can never preach a crucified Savior without a crucified life. And you can never have a crucified life without being broken. In a few moments we're going to surround this precious table of remembrance. We're going to read those classic words given by revelation of God to Paul. And we're going to remember again that this bread was broken. Broken. To symbolize his broken body. But more than that, his broken heart. We're going to take this wine and we're going to drink it to symbolize not only his poured out life in sacrifice, but the giving of his soul even unto death. And before that heart could pour out its blood, it had to be pierced through with a spear. Do you know a broken heart? Do I know a broken heart? Let me tell you something. The Christ who indwells us is the Christ of a broken heart. The Christ of a broken heart. And the travail of our Savior in heaven should find an echo in our hearts right now. You say, is he traveling? Yes, you read your Bible carefully. And he'll continue to travel until his soul is satisfied. He's traveling right now in heaven. He's traveling in heaven right now over souls that are lost, over a church that's worldly, over stunted growth, over the fact that we're not ready in the devil's power to pour out the blessing, over creation that's groaning and traveling and pain together until now, waiting the manifestations of the Son of God in that mighty last act of redemption. And he'll go on traveling until he has brought in his kingdom of peace and prosperity, until the new heavens and the new earth, until the eternal state, until sin and its stain is cleared out of the universe. He'll go on traveling. And anyone who's linked with my Savior and knows by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the heart throb of Jesus Christ will know a broken heart. When we tell the truth, whether it's in the gospel, whether it's in an act of witness, or whether it's just putting matters right, as Paul is describing here, it must be a heartfelt explanation of the truth. And so Paul speaks of the painfulness of his heart. He speaks of the brokenness of his heart. I wrote unto you with many tears. Paul experienced the painfulness of heart, the brokenness of heart, and finally here, the tenderness of heart. Oh, I love those closing words of verse 4. Look at them with me. The tenderness of heart. That ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. That ye might know the love, the love which I have more abundantly unto you. Do you notice that Paul doesn't speak to them of love in any of the preceding verses? This is the last word he says. Because Unless, unless he could guarantee that he was honest, that he was humble, that he was helpful, that he was healthy, they would have never believed him. But even then, they wouldn't believe him unless it was heartfelt. And there must be a painfulness and a brokenness of heart before there can be a tenderness of heart. The sequence is more, most important. Painfulness leads to brokenness and brokenness to tenderness. 
And we're told by its position in the Greek that the word love here has the strongest possible emphasis. Paul's converts were the objects of his affection. But as the expression more abundantly shows, he had a very special love for the Corinthians. Now we all talk about the Philippine church and we say that was Paul's love church. And he had great love toward the Philippians. I don't find it anywhere in scripture quite as plainly as this. Paul says if there is a church, if there is a church over which I yearn, if there is a church for which I have love more abundantly, it's you, you people at Corinth. And I want to remind you, I want to remind you in what context he says this. The tenderness of this love is all the more remarkable when we realize that Paul was addressing this letter to people who had discredited his authority, diluted his message, and defamed his character. We'll find that in this very epistle. They had challenged his authority. They diluted his message. They defamed his character. And he says, I want to tell you, I want to tell you, I want to tell you the truth. And if only you could see the anguish of my heart, if you only knew how broken my heart is, I want to tell you that I love you more abundantly. The tenderness of Paul's heart. Nothing less than the indwelling life of Jesus could make this possible. This is the implementation, if you will, of Calvary in a man's life. To read these words is to hear again the cry from the cross, Father, forgive them, forgive them, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Nothing can be more melting and moving than the spirit of forgivingness such as this. Thus we see what we mean by a heartfelt explanation behind Paul's words where the painfulness, brokenness and tenderness of a heart crushed by concern and love for his converts. Such an outworking of love is the supreme answer to all the problems of misunderstanding, poor communication, ruptured relationships. In our attempt to unravel the tangles and to right the wrongs, we must certainly be honest. We certainly must be humble. We must certainly be helpful. We must certainly be healthy. But we can do all that and still not win the battle. More important than everything, we must be heartbroken when we approach this matter of explaining the truth. Only this heartfelt approach reveals the price that love pays in terms of painfulness, brokenness, and tenderness. There is only one place where this approach can be learned, and that is Calvary. And that is Calvary. Explanations are never questioned beneath the cross of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Take it home with you. Never forget it. Explanations are never questioned beneath the cross of Jesus. Some words that came to me in prayer and in meditation this morning on this tremendous theme I share with you as we close. O Christian, always tell the truth be honest in your soul, for every idle word you speak will one day take its toll. O Christian, always tell the truth. Be humble in your speech, for only thus you'll reach the hearts, win the hearts of those you're out to reach. O Christian, always tell the truth. Be helpful, wise, and kind, for Jesus lived and taught this way, 
This is the master's mind. O oh, Christian, always tell the truth. Be healthy in your aim, for motives matter in this work, and even more your name. O oh, Christian, always tell the truth. Express a heartfelt love, for this is language understood on earth or heaven above. O oh, Christian, always tell the truth, for truth can never lie. Since God is truth, our very truth, and God can never die. Christian, tell the truth. Let us pray. Our Father, with all our hearts we cry to thee that thou will take the simplicity and sincerity of this sermon this morning and cause it to be a message once and forever to us. Teach us that our Lord Jesus Christ was in fact the very truth. He could say, I am the truth. And we claim that he indwells us. Oh, may his indwelling life break through us in all the virtue of his Calvary passion, that out of our lips and out of our lives may come nothing less, nothing more than the truth. We ask it for thy dear name's sake. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is Olford. Dot org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.